This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast, friends. For Sunday, July the 24th. A little later in the program, towards the tail end, we'll open up the lines, do some open lines. Rare is the opportunity for that, so we'll uh, we'll take a little time and turn the program over to uh, to you, really. You, me, and the telephone. And uh, before we get there, we've got uh, an hour and 57 minutes uh, to cover. And uh, at 12 a.m., we'll... Um, work in Linda Godfrey, artist, teacher, writer. She's carved a nice uh, niche for herself, one of the most respected authorities on anomalous animals and paranormal phenomena in the Badger State, Wisconsin. And But uh, she'll be talking about uh, uh, some strange creatures in Wisconsin, but she'll also be talking about some strange creatures in and around uh, Michigan, the Michigan Dog Man. If you're familiar with that legend, you'll want to tune in. If you're not familiar with it, you'll want to tune in. Fascinating story. Some of these unknown canine creatures uh, said to be wandering around down there in the lower 48. And I think Linda Godfrey's appearance on the show will actually serve as a uh, kind of a nice cleansing of the palate, a sorbet, a radio sorbet, if you will, because the first hour is going to deal with things far more tragic uh, and pressing and uh, things that are absolutely necessary to talk uh, talk about. We will talk about the war on Libya, which is uh, what I promoted up on the website, richardserrett.com. But obviously events that have transpired uh, since the 22nd uh, really necessitate that we talk about not uh, just Libya, but Norway. The uh, the tiny kingdom of Norway. Five million people. You know, we often say, oh, a country's in shock over this or over that, but that is truly the case. Uh, that, that 106-year-old kingdom really shaken to its core and traumatized after... Uh, well, he's being described as a, uh, you know, a right-wing extremist, whatever that means. We'll find out in a moment. Uh, Anders Breivik 
gathering those poor, trusting youngsters around him on Utoya Island in Norway and then calmly shooting them, ignoring their cries for mercy. And um, many reports, writers commenting that he has opened a wound that may never quite heal. In proportional terms, Norway lost more people than America did on 9-11. And uh, keep in mind, most of them are young, between 13 and 19. The, uh, the Labour Party in Norway was uh, having a, a youth conference. And uh, the Prime Minister was uh, expected to speak there. In fact, uh, of course, the, the first event that rocked Norway was the, uh, the bombing of a high office tower in the government quarter, which, which housed the Prime Minister's office. He wasn't there. Uh, we now know, apparently, that uh, Anders Breivik purchased about, uh, well, he, uh, some fertilizer. He made a homemade fertilizer bomb, essentially. And uh, there was, of course, a, uh, a screed on his uh, website or his Facebook or whatever it was uh, denouncing multiculturalism in Europe, basically uh, complaining about um, Muslim immigration. And um, he's been linked to some right-wing English groups, although the English Defense League in England, have they've distanced themselves from this uh, nutcase. But who is this gentleman? What is he all about? What does he really want? We are about to find out. Webster Tarpley is one of the most incisive critics of Anglo-American hegemony. As an activist, historian, is best known for his book, George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. Really a masterpiece of research, which is still a must-read. He's a 9-11 truth scholar and activist. And uh, author of a number of other incredible books, including 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA... And I had, uh, although I've, I've known Webster over the radio, over the airwaves, uh, probably for about 10 years, I had the great pleasure of finally meeting him face-to-face in a, uh, a hotel uh, just north of Washington, D.C., where we, um, we sat down before the television cameras, and, uh, and, and uh, I interviewed Webster for my uh, TV show, upcoming season two of The Conspiracy Show. Afterwards, we were ap- actually able to... Uh, to sit down and dine together, and what a great pleasure that was. But obviously now we're on to far more somber events, uh, but still, a great pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Webster Tarpley. Webster, how are you this evening? Richard, thank you. I'm, I'm fine. Who is uh, this, uh, this uh, gentleman? Uh, gentleman huh? Who is this right-wing extremist they're talking about over there in, in Norway exactly? Well, maybe first a word of warning. Um, the, the one thing, I think the only thing we really know about this person is that he is a patsy in a contrived terrorist event. Uh, and it simply means that everything you think you're learning about him, this fascinating array of opinions, the 1,500 pages of ideological drivel, his manifesto for the independence of Europe, I would regard all of that with the most extreme skepticism, because what we've found over the years, again and again and again, we've always been confronted with the psychotic lone assassin who allegedly carries these things out. 
And, of course, he's got to display an ideological profile in order to, to, to mobilize the hatreds and the resentments and the animus of people across the world. He's got to have some kind of an ideological profile or an ethnic profile or a religious profile or some other thing that is going to attract uh, strong emotions. And this is exactly where you cannot f- fall into the, into the trap. Because, again, in, in, in the parlance of technical, well, espionage, counter, counterintelligence, I guess, which is what we, we need to be putting on now, uh, what you hear about this guy, Breivik, is his legend or his cover story, and I think we can assume that it is a totally artificial ideological profile which has been carefully assembled over a period of years. And you have to remind yourself, look at the times you've been fooled. For example, Lee Harvey Oswald was supposedly a communist sympathizer, and how was that done? He had been sent to Russia, to the Soviet Union, brought back. There was even an attempt to get him into Cuba, this is known as sheep dipping. This simply means that you take uh, a, a patsy, an asset who's sitting there, and you get him associated with certain people, and then later on you can accuse them of somehow being uh, implicated in the things that he has done. And it often turns out to be completely fantastic. For example, you take Mohammed Atta, this, the alleged pilot. I don't believe he was the pilot, but he's thought to be, he's widely reputed to be the pilot of the first plane hitting the North Tower there on, on 9-11. And he, of course, was supposed to be a very pious Islamic fundamentalist, except if you go and interview the people that knew him in, in Venice, Florida, he was somebody who went to the discotheque, he drank alcohol, he lived with a very dubious uh, lady, uh, he, he uh, had his hobbies included uh, mangling uh, pets and things like this. So the interesting thing about the story you've heard about Breivart is the, the contradictions. In other words, the moment where we can find evidence in the real world that will tend to contradict the, the story that's being built up around this guy, uh, that's, I think, when it becomes interesting. Rather than, than try to go into his particular story, this, the, his story becomes an exercise in literary criticism or theater criticism, because that's really what it is. It's a piece of theater that's being foisted on the world. I just, one or two examples. It's supposedly he has 1,500 pages of ideology, except, according at least to the London Daily Telegraph, I haven't had time to read the 1,500 pages and do the philological comparisons, but a lot of his manifesto is lifted from the Unabomber, apparently, mm. without attribution. So whatever else he's guilty of, he's guilty of plagiarism. Now, this indicates something already a bit strange, right? Because this guy's supposed to be a hard-line right-winger, right? Practically a neo-Nazi. And certainly the Unabomber was, if anything, the, the opposite. He was supposed to be a, a green ecologist. Right, that, railing against the mechanization of society and right. so forth. Let me, all before. that this shows is that this is bunk, that these, these profiles are fake. They're concocted. They don't hold up under serious analysis. Let not me just remind... Uh, not, 
not Atta and not this guy. Let me just remind listeners, Webster Tarpley uh, joining us. Uh, the website tarpley.net, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y.net. Webster, let me, uh, be, I know uh, where you're, you're heading, but before we get there, we'll, we'll take a time out, but let me just ask you this as we go into the break, and, and you can give me a short response if you can. Uh, I understand that, that on your side, you've got you know this pattern recognition uh, going for you, and history uh, would, would tend to be on your side, but... Uh, uh, to paraphrase Freud, sometimes isn't a right-wing extremist just a right-wing extremist? No, not not when he's not when there's a second shooter on the island, which is is the overwhelming report now from the eyewitnesses. And I'm referring here to a a newspaper in Oslo called VG. They have two witnesses plus. They have several witnesses who say there was a second shooter on the island, and they've even got a description of him. All right, one well, meter eighty tall, dark hair, Nordic features, whatever that means means something to them, I guess. So there's a second shooter. Now, as soon as there's a second shooter, who uh, there's an attempt to, to, to sort of write him out of the media narrative, then you're dealing with something. The other thing is that the Oslo police had conducted some fairly large-scale bomb exercises in the center of the city. Aha, uh-huh. okay, uh, that sounds here. familiar, doesn't it? Listen, we'll the take drill, a... The t- the exercise. Yes. It's actually used to prepare the ground. Let's, uh, let's take a time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about the, uh, the drill, which always seems to be present, the exercise uh, before the actual event. Back with more, my conversation with Webster Tarpley here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. I heard a big boom, and I just ran out uh, of the cafe because I come to the end of it and the just understood this is something else that's extraordinary. And then when we ran over the corner, it was like arriving from war scene from some kind of movie. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-740. Police are saying the shootings at the camp are connected to the earlier bombing in a coordinated attack. One suspect has been arrested for both attacks. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. We're talking about the uh, horrific uh, events that unfolded in Norway. I believe the death toll now is at 93, 86 of those uh, children, essentially, um, and, and very young adults uh, between the ages of 13 and 19 uh, on the island of Utøya in Norway at a, uh, a gathering of um, the Labour Party's uh, youth wing. Uh, and the other seven individuals killed during the bombing, which took place in the government quarter of Oslo. Uh, the suspect in this Anders Bering Breivik apparently bought uh, several tons, six up to six tons of uh, fertilizer supposedly and placed in a couple of vehicles. Uh, Webster Tarpley joining us on the line, historian author, a researcher and uh, you were mentioning 
the, um, the, the exercise that was going, this was an anti-terror exercise going on at the same time in Oslo? Webster? Yes, there, there was some confusion about this because it, it, it is a little bit difficult to get into the Norwegian press, but uh, we do what we can. Uh, originally, it was thought that this, this uh, drill had been held within the last week. No, it was held on the 17th, or at least the report in the Aftenposten, which is big sort of mainstream newspaper, right? The, uh, what, the Toronto Globe and Mail or something like this. Right. So they publish... Uh, a story about bomb explosions going off at the Opera House, which is maybe half a kilometer from the Prime Minister's office, and people being shocked. But this is the 17th, 18th of March of last year. doesn't change very much in terms of assembling the capabilities. Uh, but what we've seen again and again and again is that when you have these horrendous events taking place, somehow associated with them shortly before, on the day of or in preparation, that doesn't matter, is something that includes an event which is eerily similar to what is actually going to occur. So in this case, it's concussion grenades going off, uh, hand grenades going off. In this, It's a building, apparently, people in Oslo have told me, it was called the Sugar Cube that existed there last year. It's been torn down in the meantime. But again, that doesn't change anything. It was a drill which assembled the capability, which uh, I think is very likely to have lain dormant for a while, until it was then mobilized, mobilized this past week. And I can, I can tell you more about that. But look, methodologically, I think the most important thing for people is to assemble a, a, a way of thinking about these things so when you're confronted with new ones, you can look at them. The first thing you have to understand is the psychological warfare people who design these things want you to be focused on the patsy, on, on Breivik. This I would not do. Rather, we have to ask ourselves, where are the moles? Who are the people in the government apparatus that make this possible? And secondly, who are the technicians that can really do the things that are attributed to the patsy? Uh, now, in this case, we've already mentioned it. The second shooter uh, on this island, the story is that uh, you know, scores and scores of people, 70, 80 people, were killed on this island. Is it really possible for one person to do all this. Uh, is it not possible that the second shooter was there? Well, that is exactly the testimony we find in this very important uh, newspaper, VG, which quotes two people by name and others unnamed, including a description of the second shooter. Now, it's likely that that second shooter is indeed a technician. In other words, someone who has more of a training with weapons than the patsy is likely to have had. In this case, the patsy is some kind of an intellectual and an ideologue even though he has his picture taken with guns. Um, it, plus, this is now widely uh, recognized. In the past 24 hours, I have heard reports of the second shooter on CNN, CBS Radio News, France 24, and that's to help you with your French uh, quota for the program. Thank you, thank uh, you. <laughs> they have, they have, they've all had it. So I think this is... It's established. Now, again, there will be an attempt to write him out of the narrative completely, but we want to hold on to that. In other words, we don't want to be so hypnotized by the patsy that we forget the technicians. And then we have the moles. Who are the people in the government apparatus that made this possible? Well, one interesting question is there is a SWAT team, a kind of a delta force of the Norwegian government, and they're based in Oslo. Why was it not possible for them to get to this island, which I believe is something like 25 or 30 miles away, why could they not intervene in the island 
more rapidly? Why did it have to be... There's a German tourist who, who, uh, who, who took it upon himself to jump in a boat, go over there, start pulling kids out of the water. He made four or five trips before the police arrived. Precisely. What is it now with the police that makes them so slow? Uh, I, I always think of other cases, right? In the case Princess Diana, why was she left there by the Paris police for the best part of an hour, essentially to bleed to death, when a quick trip to the hospital might have saved her life? And so many other cases. Why was there no air defense on 9-11? In these cases, you have to ask yourself, who are the people inside the state apparatus who make sure that things go the tragic way that they do go. So don't focus on the patsy. Look for the technician, the person who can actually do the killing, and look for the facilitators, the moles inside the, uh, the state apparatus. And well, then finally, look for the drills. And we've, we've already identified at least one highly relevant drill. And when you do a drill, you've built up a capability, and again, that can stay... It's easy to have it stay around for a year. It can stay around more than a year. What do you mean by build up the capability, Webster? Well, it might include uh, the hardware. In other words, how do you get a bomb into a uh, secure area of central Oslo where the prime minister's office is located? Well, you can bring in the bomb. You can bring in the real bomb in the midst of some fake bombs, pretend bombs that are going to be used at the sugar cube for terror anti-terror drills last year and then you've left them around and they're sort of uh you've got a sleeper sleeper stock of bombs very close to the prime minister's office for whatever purpose it's going to be so another example of that would have been the the first uh, bombing of the world trade center uh, towers in 93 and then or is that too far back and then no, the no, subsequent no, one perfectly uh, i would say the 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 things the, the direct preparation and this is actually uh, one of my specialties the uh, my book 911 synthetic terror made in usa we're we're preparing the 5th edition now for the 10th anniversary i have identified 25 drills that are taking place either shortly before 911 or on the day of or in preparation and shortly before is really for 9-11, which is a very ambitious uh, exercise. It's, it's three or four years. So you've got a, a, a sustained buildup for 9-11, a you know, very complex operation. However, what we're seeing in Norway is also a, a rather large event. It's more or less on the scale of Oklahoma City, or, but not quite. So it's, it's, it's comparable in that sense. So it's certainly easy you can easily imagine capabilities, hardware in particular, that is put in place 15, 16 months, a year and a half in advance. That's nothing, uh, especially when you think about you know, that the, the, the time clock for intelligence agencies is rather slower than the rest of us are inclined to think. What's interesting about this also is that, the, that uh, uh, Breivik gave himself up. Now, normally, if, uh, you know, history shows that the, the person is either, uh, either takes their own life or they are uh, taken out um, by shooters. This is different. Well, um, again, I don't want to focus too much on the, on the patsy in this case, but there are some interesting things. First of all, the uh, things that are objective that we can verify, his father seems to have been a Norwegian diplomat by the name of Jens Breivik, J-E-N-S, Jens, Jens, who uh, had been a Norwegian diplomat at the embassies in Paris and London. Now, <laughs> it doesn't take too much imagination to imagine that such a person might not be completely unaware of 
intelligence agencies. Might be a spook himself. If he's a spook, then who's the recent case? Mutalab, the Christmas Day underwear bomber. His father was uh, an important, uh, you know, banker, uh, a bigwig, right? Somebody who operates in these highly charged uh, areas. The other thing we find is that with uh, with Breivik, he has got photographs. When you see these photographs, you think of Cho, Virginia Tech, April 2007. Somebody who had a whole suite of uh, photographs of himself. In terms of the, the general impact, it looks like McVeigh. In other words, it looks like a modern, ideological European McVeigh with, uh, again, a very, very high death toll for, uh, for one or two uh, people. And finally, the, the ideological side is that he is on the same level with the Unabomber. Again, it, it looks like he's lifted you know, thousands and thousands of words directly out of the Unabomber manifesto, although, again, I have to caveat that because I haven't actually read through all this. But what you see is the, the characteristic memes of, of recent cases that have been assembled, right, in, in, the, in the case of this person. Now, the big question is, why? Why do this? What is the point? And here, you have to realize that uh, this Norwegian government has, uh, they have a, a history, Norway in particular, has a history of independent foreign policy going back, well, really, to the, to the 1990s. In particular, in, in what, 1993, 1994, it was, after all, the Norwegian government that actually was able to put together the first real negotiation between the Israeli government under Prime Minister Rabin and the Palestinians under Yasser Arafat. And that was the Oslo Accords of, what, two, in 1994, which was a great watershed full of promise, soon marred by the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin inside Israel, and then that has tended to, to fall apart. And the current Israeli government, in many ways, is the, they have inherited, they've been the beneficiaries, for want of a better word, of the, of the demise of, uh, of Rabin. Now we've got the big push to have the Palestinian state recognized at the coming UN General Assembly. The Norwegian government has already announced that they will themselves recognize and presumably vote for, in the, in the General Assembly, the, uh, the independent Palestinian state. Now, that obviously gets them into a conflict with the Israelis, but also with the U.S., with Hillary Clinton and so forth. You have a very interesting government in Norway. It is a government of the Labour Party. That would be Prime Minister Stoltenberg. But you've also got the left socialists. They have some ministries. And then you've got the center party. And in particular, the foreign minister, Sturda, S-T-O with a line drawn through it, R-E. That seems to be a very interesting uh, person, right? He's in some ways the strategist of this. The big thing is when, this now leads into our other topic of Libya, when the issue of bombing Libya came up, the so-called no-fly zone, Sturda, the Norwegian foreign minister, was one of the most outspoken in warning the other NATO powers, don't do this, don't start bombing Libya, don't bomb an Arab country. You can see that the Norwegians have tried to develop a pro-Arab foreign policy. This has gotten them into, uh, into trouble over the years. Again, it's not new. But what is new is that they tried to avoid the bombing of Libya. Then when the bombing of Libya started... They caved in, unfortunately. Uh, they said, all right, you know, you, you've told us it's for 90 days. 
we'll send our planes for 90 days. And sure enough, they did. They sent six F-16s. Doesn't sound like a lot, but the six F-16s that they sent uh, have uh, reportedly carried out 10% of the bombing raids, specifically. When it came to bombing ground targets, the Norwegian planes did 10% of that. Uh, But once the 90 days ran out, towards the end of uh, June, they had announced that they were pulling out, that they were going from six planes to four planes for the month of July, where we are now, and that essentially within, what, 10 days now, a week, they will quit. They're dropping out. And it is very important. As of August 1st, Norway has announced they will not contribute any more uh, planes under any form to this uh, attack coalition against Libya. Now, that's the first NATO state to drop out in that high-profile way. So Anders, uh, just to, to, to cut to the quick here, Webster, before we go into a break, Anders Breivik was, uh, was payback for that foreign policy decision, perhaps? I can't see how you could look at it any other way. In other words, if you're, if you're in the elite of Norway, if you're one of the people in the government, and you'd say, what is it, you know, wh- why is this happening to us? I don't think they're going to they're gonna get lost in the details of the 1,500 pages. That's more or less... That's propaganda for people who really don't know what's going on. What is going on is that Norway is dropping out. The Dutch, the Netherlands, with their six planes, on the same day that Norway acted, the Dutch went along with them saying, we will continue with our six planes, but we won't do any bombing. Now, what this means is that there's a movement among the NATO states to drop out. Maybe Canada should take note of this, too. Indeed. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll uh, shift gears slightly when we come back. We'll get to some phone calls for Webster Tarpley and move on to the war on Libya. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Two hours later, on an island 25 miles away, a nightmare of a different kind. A man dressed as a police officer opened fire at a camp for children of the ruling Labour Party. Witnesses say that a man who appeared to be doing a security check related to the earlier bombing in Oslo entered the camp and identified himself as a police officer before opening fire. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Norway is a peaceful country. It's a country where uh, the Prime Minister will walk uh, through the streets from his office building to the Parliament, which is uh, uh, four or five blocks away. That is going to change. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. A country of only 5 million people. uh, And you're looking at a death toll of around 93. uh, Just absolute uh, shock and trauma inflicted on that country. Um... Webster Tarpley is uh, with us. We're going to move on to uh, to um, the war on Libya in just a moment, but uh, let's uh, grab some phone calls here. First of all, uh, 
let's say hello to Ryan in Toronto. Good evening, Ryan. Hey, good evening. How are you? Well, thank you. Um, so, my que- I just want to say uh, to Webster, uh, I um, appreciate his work. I saw him in several movies and saw his commentary on uh, Obama Deception and the other uh, Alex Jones movies. Uh, so, I, I, my, my question was, uh, since you've been observing international uh, terrorism unfold in the false flag manner that it's been happening, obviously, for many years now, have you noticed a general uh, uh, viewing of the public be significantly more skeptical than it's ever been. Um, obviously, the false flag operations have a history dating back to World War One, World War Two, um, Vietnam, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I'm viewing, in a, and uh, I wanted to see if that was uh, your conjecture as well, that the general public or a small section of the general public is becoming increasingly um, dissatisfied with the mainstream view and viewing things through a, a cla- glasses that are. Uh, giving them an indication that most of the stuff that they're getting from the news is BS. Let me let me hasten to to point out that uh, this is far older than, uh, than than these recent examples. I mean, one one interesting example is the the gunpowder plot of November 1605 with Guy Fawkes. That how, is false flag. How uh, about ancient Rome and Spartacus using Spartacus? Guy, Guy Fawkes being a patsy for uh, Lord Robert Cecil. The, uh, the chancellor of the country to set up a provocation that would allow him to persecute the Catholics more and remain in power. So it, it's, it goes back to time immemorial. You can even find it in the natural world. That if you see a butterfly that's got a pattern to look like the eyes of an owl, that's essentially a false flag. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's a deeply rooted, uh, you know, it's, it's deception. Right? It's the lie, a lie is the, the, the intent of deceiving. Uh, and this is what they do. Now, today, I suppose people are, they are somewhat more skeptical, but nowhere near enough. And unfortunately, you can still play them according to their ideology one way or another. In other words, if you look at that guy, Breivik, and you feel the need to take sides, in other words, you don't like him because he's a right winger, or you do like him and sympathize with him because you think he's a right winger, you're being duped. This is exactly what you must not do. This is where Machiavelli would teach you, you must have a, an attitude of emotional detachment to these stories told by people, and don't immediately fall into the idea of choosing sides. It's like when you, you turn on a baseball game or something, right? You, you see something going on and you feel, well, I, who am I for? You don't want to be for anybody. You want to be a critic uh, of, of the entire thing. And let me hasten to add, um, my book, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, which you can, you can order through tarpley.net on the Internet, tarpley.net, uh, it, it expounds really a theory of, of terrorism, which de- depends on these ideas of the patsy, the mole, and the technician, and these are, these are three separate planes of activity, and they can intersect, and the, at the point where the molds, the patsies, and the technicians intersect, there arises what we could call maybe an optical illusion sometimes, or an epistemological illusion, uh, or just an illusion, a mirage, which is the false flag event itself, and people respond to the mirage, don't respond to the mirage. All right. Uh, let's say hello to Fred in Whitby. Good evening, Fred. Hi. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Uh, uh, my question is about Libya now. Uh, in the region, in the Middle East, it seems like there's a group of people that that are, are trying to destabilize the Middle East. For what reason, I don't know. 
uh, could you tell me uh, what you believe? Well, I, I think what we're seeing, the big news of this year, is a total crisis of the Anglo-American world empire, right? That the, between New York, Wall Street, Washington, and London, uh, that has more or less dominated the world since 1945, uh, and it's gone through various ups and downs. But right now, there's a general tendency for this empire to, to, to crash down. Now, that ought to... That ought to uh, scare us, because I could go through, if we had time, I could go through the, the fall of the Spanish Empire led to a world war. That was the Thirty Years' War. Half the people in Central Europe died. The fall of the French Empire gives you a hundred years of war from the War of the Spanish Succession to Napoleon. The fall of the British Empire basically gives us the two world wars of the 20th century. Now, if we're going to have the downfall of the Anglo-American Empire, we have acute danger of a world war, and this is how it happens. You look at these countries um, like Egypt. Uh, Egypt was attempting to assert itself as an independent entity out of the empire, right? At, orienting towards Russia, towards China. You look at Pakistan. Their orientation is towards China. This is very clear. You look at Libya. What did Gaddafi do? He had 50,000 Chinese workers, and he was attempting to get a railroad and, and a missile defense from Russia. You look at Algeria, they have the Chinese. Most of the countries in Africa have brought in the Chinese. Other countries like Iran are attempting to assert themselves. It looked like Turkey was trying to assert itself, although I think it's fallen back under the, the Anglo-American uh, aegis. But Saudi Arabia, very good example. Saudi Arabia feels that if they stay with the U.S., the U.S. will overthrow them with the color revolution, and I think it's realistic. Therefore, Saudi Arabia is looking to Russia and to China. And we've been told by the, uh, by the leaders of Saudi Arabia that they, we may be coming to the parting of the ways between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. So you get the idea. If you get countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan that are, that are trying everything they can to get out of the empire, right, to, j to have a jailbreak, essentially, they don't want to be under the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and they don't want to be subject to NATO intervention in the way that, that uh, Libya is, is being treated. So, therefore, they're, they're looking for ways out. And the instability that this creates, the counter-reactions of the U.S. and the British, I think have, have created a, a, a widespread dynamic towards a general conflagration. We could say a world war, provided you don't have to think about it like 1939 or 1941, and you don't have to think about it like uh, a nuclear war. It could be more like that 30 years war that I've mentioned, which is sort of a ragged series of flare-ups, die-downs over a period of decades. That Web seems to be what we've got on our hands right now. Webster, who is uh, Colonel Gaddafi? I mean, is he the the uh, the demon that, uh, that we think here in the West? I mean, obviously, he's not all good, but he's not all bad either. Well, look, uh, I've, I've just been to Libya and, and um, spent about, what, uh, 10 or 12 days in Libya, primarily in Tripoli and some, some areas not too far around, although c coming in and out, you get to see quite a, quite a swath of the country. Um, you have to realize that under the Anglo-American empire, authoritarian regimes are the norm. So this, I don't know how you can blame this on him. This is what they all are, right, from Marcos to the Shah. You have to compare them using some other means. You can generally say in the Anglo-American empire, there is no material basis for democracy. And above all, even more than that, these countries are constantly under attack. They're constantly encircled. 
So there's a, there's a kind of aversive, hostile environment that practically pushes them towards authoritarian forms. Now, having said all that, right, it is, it's authoritarian, and, and there's no doubt. What are the merits? Well, the merits are, are simply, uh, they're considerable. One is that in 1969-70, when Gaddafi took power, Libya was really one of the poorest countries in, in Africa. It was not much difference between Libya and someplace like Chad or Mali or, or southern Sudan. Whereas if you look now, Libya is number 57 on the UN Human Development Index, meaning that they have passed Russia, Ukraine, Brazil, and a whole series of other countries. They are the most developed society in Africa, or at least they were before, this, uh, before the bombing began. What are the merits? Overthrow a reactionary monarchy, that of King Idris, who was a British puppet. Throw off a foreign protectorate. That was the British protectorate, which was established after the British kicked out the, uh, the Italians, right? when Montgomery, in effect, uh, did this by defeating Rommel at, uh, at Tobruk and, and such places. So that's one, the nationalization of oil. It was nationalized. Unfortunately, he reprivatized some of it after the, the U.S. attack on Iraq. You can see why he did it. This was self-defense, but this was a terrible mistake. It increased the unemployment to about 20%. One of the biggest merits is this great man-made river, which I think is just admirable, which most people don't know about. It's a $32, $33 billion uh, engineering project. In many years, in the late 1990s and the early part of the uh, of the 80s, this great man-made river was the biggest irrigation project in the world. It was the biggest civil engineering project in the world for much of that time. It involved tapping into the aquifers below the Sahara Desert and then building huge steel pipelines to get that fresh water to these cities, Tripoli, Benghazi, and these other places along the coast. In the process, Libya acquired its own steel industry. There's a steel plant at Mizurata, one of the things these rebels have been, have been destroying. And with that uh, steel plant, they were making the biggest steel tubes in the world. So not Manisman of Germany, not Mitsubishi, heavy industries of Japan, or any of these other companies, but Libya, which had been backward third world dirt poor country free uh, university education free houses yes you have uh, you have a housing allowance if you get married you are essentially given at least an apartment there is a, a, a social welfare system which we here in in the united states could only dream of i mean it's the it is um, remarkable for anybody in the world to have this and to have a an african country which was essentially nomads really up until up until you know four, four, three or four decades ago, it's absolutely extraordinary. And the other, the other side that you have to ask yourself: if you don't like Gaddafi, then what? In other words, you you, you don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire, which uh, you're always in danger of doing. Who are these rebels? Well, in a word, they're Al Qaeda. The military capabilities of the rebels, and I've looked into this in some detail. Uh, it's heavily larded with al-Qaeda terrorists. And the United States government knows exactly who these terrorists are because quite a few of them have been prisoners of war. Uh, we, we found that uh, in, the, uh, in the initial weeks of the rebellion, the town of Derna, which is, I think, the third largest city of the rebels between Benghazi and Tobruk in that Cyrenaica area that has rebelled, city of Derna was under the, the leadership, under the, this is a dictatorship, I would say, this is quite ugly, of a guy called Hassadi. And Hassadi had been a jihadi. 
He had indeed been a prisoner of war of the United States, captured uh, in Pakistan near the Afghan border, and what he had been doing was to bring jihadis from Libya into uh, into Pakistan, Afghanistan. His second in command, even more so, was a guy called Gumu, and this Gumu had been in Guantanamo Bay concentration camp for several years. You have to begin to look at Guantanamo as something of a training facility rather than just a uh, you know a, 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 a torture chamber. So this and is CIA run. Was, this is a CIA CIA run Al Qaeda unit. Yes, but that's what they all are. That's what Al Qaeda is. Al Qaeda is the CIA Arab Legion, so created by Robert Gates and similar people back in uh, at the time of the Afghan War to fight the Soviets. It was foreign fighters brought into uh, into Afghanistan, and now those same foreign fighters, be they from Afghanistan or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, they've been brought into Libya, and that's what is fighting Gaddafi. And and they don't do very well. But they do have NATO air support, at least until Norway drops out with 10% of the effort. The Netherlands have said they will not do any more bombing. That's another 10%. Uh, the U.S. has been attacking Denmark for not doing their fair share. Berlusconi, I think, never wanted to be part of this. Italy is a tremendous loser in this to the benefit of the French, right? The whole. Libyan uh, oil system is basically the Italian state oil company, ENI, E-N-I. Uh, and they're, when it's over, they're not going to have ENI. They're going to lose their concessions because of the, of the treachery that the, uh, that the Italians have displayed. Let, me, they, work, let they, me work in another call here, Webster. Uh, Keith is in Rochester tonight. Keith, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, I have comments about both Norway and Libya. The problem with Norway is that it forgot its Viking roots. Uh, the Norwegians have not kept up, apparently, on their defense spending. That's why it took their special forces so long to uh, get to that island. Your guest did not mention the Iman who was deported, who in his own words said, we want to breed and breed and basically outbreed the Norwegians out of their own country. So you, sir, the host, started off by saying that this guy was a madman and a devil, and he may well be, but there is much consternation, maybe not in Canada, but uh, amongst many of us, and I'll say it bluntly, us white people, about these Muslims coming in who would like nothing better than to, uh, if not all of them, certainly not the majority thinking, but if... Uh, no, 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 no over, let's be very clear. We're not talking about even even a percentile, uh, Keith, and I, I can't allow that kind of uh, those kind of comments uh, to be allowed out over the air, quite frankly. So, uh, uh, Keith, I know you're a regular caller to the program, but uh, you know, next time you really need to tone down that kind of language. I won't tolerate it. Uh, thank you for that, uh, regardless. Uh, Arthur is in Toronto. Welcome. I just have two brief questions, so I hope you don't cut me off, because I'll try to be very brief. One is, is there a connection between the Norwegian tragedy and what happened in New York City with the towers. All right, Webster. Any well, connection between? Well, I have to say, uh, th there's no um, direct. Uh, it depends on what you mean by by a connection. In other words, my thesis is that these are both examples of manufactured provocations. In other words, they are false flag events. They are not spontaneous. They are not carried out by the people you think, but rather they are staged in order to obtain political effects. And unfortunately, the, the whole Anglo-American system, as you could see with 9-11, has come to rely more and more on this kind of manipulation. In other words, the, the foreign policy of the United States cannot be avowed. In other words, you can't say, 
that the, at least you're not going to get people to make sacrifices for saying that the goal of the United States, say, in Afghanistan, is to prevent the creation of a pipeline from Iran into China, or indeed from Iran into India, because that would give these countries a strong common economic interest, and therefore uh, that would be uh, bad for U.S. power in that region, and that the U.S. is basically there to sabotage what I think most people would agree is normal, peaceful economic development, something everybody should really support. The United States has, has sort of cut itself out of everything that's positive and constructive in economic terms, and therefore the only fallback is, is this crazy 9-11 story, which is still being used to justify presence in Afghanistan 10 years after the fact. Arthur, so, thank yes, you. Yes, they're both part of the same fantastic continuum. Arthur, you want to look at it from that point of view. Arthur, thank you for the call. Um, uh, Keith and Rochester's uh, rather hateful comments aside, uh, he did mention an imam that was uh, ushered out of, uh, of of Norway. Did you want to comment on, on that yeah, aspect? Yeah, provocateurs come in all shapes and forms. Uh, there's no lack of provocateurs. In other words, you have foundation-funded provocateurs. This is really not different from provocateurs who are funded and deployed by intelligence agencies themselves. So for everybody who says that I think this character, uh, the, the patsy there, uh, Breivik, he says he's, he represents the European military order and criminal tribunal of the Knights Templar founded in London in April of 2002. Uh, so that's his story, right? And he's there to say that any politician who lets Muslims come into a country deserves the death penalty. So this absolute delirium, right? This is racist, fascist delirium. I don't know what else to say about that. But you'll also find people from the other side who come forward with equally fantastic statements about how they're going to impose some religious law on some larger population which has no such tradition and and so forth. And generally, the more radical they are, the more money they're getting from a foundation or from an intelligence agency. And, and likely both extremes, uh, as you say, funded by the same group. So uh, they, they create this this uh, clash of, of civilizations. Right. The say. technical term is gang and counter-gang. In other words, if you establish a gang and then a counter-gang that negates it, you can dominate a whole ideological space because of this unfortunate tendency that people have to choose sides among the existing or between the existing alternatives. And this again is what I recommend that people not do. You must be skeptical, you must be detached, and you've got to think rather than have these gut reactions that make you into a dupe. They make you into a pathetic uh, piece of flotsam and jetsam on the ocean of these crazy provocative adventures. All right, one final time out. When we come back, uh, Webster, I just want to uh, take a few moments to talk a little bit about uh, some of the books, the website, uh, and then we'll move on to other, other matters and, uh, and bid you adieu. But uh, stay put uh, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Uh, Linda Godfrey uh, standing by on uh, the other side of midnight, taking us uh, to that marker will be uh, Webster Tarpley. Just a few moments remain. Uh, Tarpley.net, the website, and um, there you can read um, uh, Webster's uh, dispatches, of course, on the uh, the front page of the website uh, this week. Norway terror attacks a false flag. More than one shooter on Ireland. Um, and we also have a number of uh, Webster's publications, including Surviving the Cataclysm and uh, the uh, unauthorized biography of Barack Obama, Obama the Postmodern Coup. Um, now, you and mentioned. If I may, Richard, we also have La Terreur Fabriquée, published by uh, Edition Demi-Lune of Paris. And there's also a French page. We have quite a number of. of um, foreign, well, world language pages, I think I'm up, up to about 12 or 15, so whatever your language, do, do take a look. Uh, and again, the books are in German, French, Italian, Spanish, Japanese. How many languages do you speak, Webster? Oh, that's classified. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, 9-11 Synthetic Terror. It's the, the fifth edition coming out, so just in time for the... Yeah, uh, the it's coming ten- out in time for the, uh, for the, for the anniversary. And again, what's different about this is this question of the exercises and the drills. Uh, what you see again and again is an, an, an astounding event, an unusual event takes place, and it turns out that there's a drill or an exercise, again, before it, during it, or after it, and the before or after can be quite a ways, right? It can be a year or two or even more. Uh, you, you wonder what is that, and the media will say, and you have that guy up there in Canada who's, who doesn't like uh, conspiracies. Well, he'll say that's just a weird happenstance, right? That's just an astounding... Are you talking about uh, Jonathan Kay? I suppose so, yeah. Yes. The guy who... who uh, uh, by the way, uh, in, in, in the case of Norway, if there is a second shooter, that means there is a conspiracy. So it's not True. a theory. True. There is a conspiracy by anybody's definition. So the 25 drills, and then you look at the the various aspects of the 9-11 event, and what you find is that virtually every aspect is covered by a drill. Um, a, a flying object hits the Pentagon. That would be Amalgam Virgo. Uh, New York City has a drill about buildings collapsing. The National Reconnaissance Office has a drill about airplanes crashing into buildings, uh, and on and on. Uh, cell phone calls from hijacked airliners, Department of Transportation drill a month or two in advance. Uh, how, do, how, do you, how do we get a copy of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, the fifth edition? Uh, well, you can, you can already get, I think I'm up to about 15 drills in the, uh, in the fourth edition, and then uh, I guess you can pre-order through uh, Progressive Press of California. And you can, one of the links on the website goes directly to Progressive Press, so you can pre-order the, uh, the fifth edition if you want to. Webster, I know this is kind of a, um, uh, maybe a silly question, but why don't we have someone like you uh, with the Washington Press Corps, like at the, the White House, asking these tough questions? Well, it, it could happen under different circumstances, but unfortunately, you know, with the... Uh, we, we have these, these British uh, press lords, right? You have Robert Maxwell, and then he gets bumped off, and then you have Conrad Black, and then he goes to jail, and then you have, uh, then you have uh, Murdoch, and who knows what's going to happen to him. But what I'm trying, simply trying to say with that is media is a cartel, and if you're going to uh, to challenge that cartel, there, there has to be a, a significant organized force that would do it. And naturally, I'd, I'd be happy to do these things. And I, I do carry this 
out to some extent anyway. If you, I do have a radio program. You shall listen to that, World Crisis Radio. That's a weekly strategic briefing. You can find that through tarpley.net and a certain uh, amount of uh, Twitter to follow things uh, minute to minute. For example, I'm very concerned. We have this, uh, we have this Tea Party movement here. These are reactionaries, and they, they're essentially bringing the United States government to its knees. It's a kind of a, an inside-outside operation with the debt ratings agencies attacking the U.S. government, the, the Tea Party, basically a group of right-wing anarchists who, uh, who don't believe there should be any government, uh, and we may get a default. And if the United States defaults, people will learn how fundamental this government is to the whole architecture of the world. Because if the United States defaults, there will be a world panic. That will be a cataclysmic event. And the, the, um, the, the precursor, the, the only thing that that's comparable to, unfortunately most people don't know about it, on September 21st, 1931, Great Britain defaulted on gold payment. That was the end of the world. That is what made the depression of the 1930s so long, so deep, and so irreversible. Because when the British defaulted, that wrecked the entire international payment system, which was a bill of exchange drawn on London. And when the British began to float their currency and do competitive devaluations, that's what wrecked world trade, and that's what put you on the slide towards, uh, towards World War II. So something like that, I don't know exactly in what form, with what details, but if the United States default, defaults, hold on to your hat. That is a cataclysmic disintegration event. Right? That will essentially, it will destroy the only world reserve currency we have, and nobody else is anywhere near having the, the prerequisites to be a world reserve currency. Webster, uh, a great pleasure, a great pleasure meeting you in person and, and uh, having uh, occasion to dine with you, and uh, I look forward to welcoming you to this broadcast uh, in the near future. Right. I can pop back in with, uh, with briefer, uh, you know, reports at, at any time you like. Let's do that. Okay. Thank you. Tarpley.net, the website. Linda Godfrey changing gears in a very dramatic fashion. We'll talk about the Michigan Dogman and other unknown canine creatures of North America. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. If you're new to the program, welcome. As um, Jeff Edens 
Wonderful composition ushers us back into hour two. Jeff Eaton of Studio 8. They have a wonderful state-of-the-art recording studio located downtown Toronto. And uh, again, uh, we thank Jeff for composing uh, our opening theme, our, our new opening theme, and our hour two theme. I just I love the, uh, the sort of that gamelan feel. Uh, great, great uh, artist, Jeff Eaton, Studio 8. All right, uh, our uh, next guest has carved herself a wonderful uh, niche, uh, really, as... Um, one of the foremost authorities and respected authorities on anomalous animals and paranormal phenomena in not only the state of Wisconsin, but um, surrounding environs, places like Michigan, and and really her her research into these unknown canine creatures across uh, North America. She is, of course, one of the acknowledged experts on the creature known as the Beast of Bray Road, and... uh, She's joining us now from the great town of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, Linda Godfrey. Linda, welcome to The Conspiracy Show again. How are you? Oh, Rich, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. And it was terrific, uh, again, meeting you in person. That's one yeah. of the wonderful things about uh, the TV show is, is finally getting to meet a lot of these wonderful guests I've had on the radio and getting to meet them in the flesh, face-to-face. And, oh, I, uh, enjoyed, I enjoyed coming there. It was, Toronto is just great. I'm glad that uh, we were able to, to, to make that happen. Uh, you know, the, the thing, Linda, about you is you have so many books on the go. You're just, if you're not, if you haven't just released one, you're writing one. And, <laughs> and sometimes you've just released one and you're writing one or two. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's hard to keep track. I mean, we have, you know, the Beast of Bray Road. We have, uh, we have Haunted Wisconsin. We have the Michigan Dog Man. What's the actual, what's the latest that you've just written? Well, the last one to come out is called Monsters of Wisconsin from Stackpole. That's number 13. And I'm working right now on one called Real Wolfmen, True Encounters in Modern America for Tarcher Penguin that will be coming out in 2012, and that will be number 14. What makes Wisconsin um, such a... Um, an attractive area, I guess, for some of these weird, these strange creatures. Is it because it's so heavily wooded? Well, it does have a lot of woods. Um, some people say it's the cheese, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't I think dis- so. I don't think no, that's it. I disagree it. with that, but on the other hand, we have lots of creature sightings in parts of the state that are pretty civilized, you know, within the triangular area between... Madison, Milwaukee, and uh, down around Beloit and Janesville. That's quite a creature corridor. So I don't know if you can completely blame it on the terrain. There are plenty of other states where I don't have such concentrations of sightings that probably have more wilderness area. Um, One thing I've discovered is that there seems to be a correlation between creature hotspots and ancient Native American artifacts. And Wisconsin does have something like 97, 96% of all the ancient animal-shaped effigy mounds in the world, other than the Ohio Serpent Mound and a few that encroach on neighboring states. Um, For some reason, Wisconsin is just blessed with these things, and I've made maps of both, and they overlay each other almost perfectly. Um, I'm just trying to remember the... um, my my high school... um 
you know, when we learned about the, the various Native American tribes, and mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking of the, is it the Menominee uh, tribe of Wisconsin? Was that one of the primary? I mean, what is the history of uh, these ancient Native American artifacts in Wisconsin? I mean, how far well, back do they go? nobody knows positively. Um, when the settlers came, the Native Americans who were here uh, weren't sure themselves because they were um, already here when they arrived. However, there's a kind of a growing consensus that they probably were constructed by people who may have been the ancestors of the Ho-Chunk that are here, which are related to the Sioux Nation in their language. Uh, ah, because okay. they were the ones who were here the earliest. Yeah, they and, would predate the Menominee, I believe. Um, um, yeah, yeah. And so what would the what possible connection... I mean, I, I understand... For example, if we are talking about some sort of spectral uh, uh, manifestation, uh, right. interdimensional, spiritual realm type thing, a connection to an ancient artifact. But if we're talking about real flesh and bone creatures, perhaps uncatalogued, uncategorized key creatures, then I don't get it. Well, you're exactly right. That there, Therein lies the rub, because the great share of sightings that I get um, don't describe any kind of a an animal that couldn't really physically exist. Its difference is in its behavior, which uh, involves usually walking upright and perhaps carrying some sort of dead animal around in its paws, you know, which isn't is not the usual behavioral aspect. But most of the sightings don't have the animals, you know, glowing or flying or, you know, doing anything that a natural wolf couldn't do. They can walk on their hind legs. They just simply don't normally do that in the wild and and aren't usually motivated to. So um, the odd thing is that it's further limited to one particular type of animal, effigy mound, where you have the almost direct correlation with dogman hotspot sightings. And interestingly enough, when you get over into Michigan, across the, the pond, as we call it, of Lake Michigan, you find that there are also correlations where they had a different type of ancient effigy mounds that were um, kind of geometric grids and, and designs. So it, it's, it's odd that these correlations exist, and I, I don't know how to explain them, really. What is uh, the the Michigan dog man exactly? I mean, what what are the eyewitness descriptions of this particular creature? Well, it isn't any different than the beast of Bray Road. And one interesting thing I've learned in finding out that this creature exists across the United States is that in many areas it has existed as its own legend, and they've developed their own names for it without realizing that it also exists in other places. Um, for instance, down south they call it the Lugaroo, or maybe even the Rougarou is another variation. And you'll find um, different different names for it according to uh, wherever you go. But in general, they're all very, very similar. They describe something with a wolf-like or German shepherd-like head, five to seven feet tall, um, pointed ears on top of its head, a long muzzle, if the mouth is open, they'll often describe um, larger-than-usual teeth or fangs. Uh, the eyes normally reflect yellow or yellow-green um, in headlights or flashlights, which is the normal canine color for reflection. And um, witnesses will all, almost always say something like, well, it walked really easily for you know a canine walking on its hind legs, except it was 
hunched over, and they're unwittingly describing the fact that it has a different sort of anatomy, that its neck is not aligned like a human. So it naturally has sort of a stoop posture when it runs erect. And also, they'll say things like, well, it ran easily except its legs looked like they were bent backwards. And what they're referring to is the fact that canines run on their toe pads, um, which the, the term for that is digitigrade, so that their heel and ankle joint, or what corresponds to a human heel and ankle joint, is up off the ground where we're sort of expecting to see a knee bending forward. Right, right. So to us it looks backwards. This is really different than Bigfoot sightings where they have a primate leg with a flat foot and a knee joint that bends forward rather like our own. So um, it's, it's quite a different creature than Bigfoot, and most people who get a good look at it are quite adamant as to which one it is. These... Witnesses, whether we're talking about the um, the dog man of Michigan or the beast of Bray Road, this unknown canine creature, the the witnesses, how credible are they? Well, of course, that varies, you know, from <laughs> from witness to witness. I would say that over twenty years, the great, great, great majority of people who contact me are sincerely frightened, sincerely curious. Um, wanting to contribute their story to the database, which is what I always encourage people to do. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of trying to vet the stories. I don't have the resources to give everybody a polygraph test, although we did do that on the first episode of Monster Quest, and every single one passed it with flying colors. Um, but I do think that there are a few people out there once in a while who want some notoriety and then you know, make something up, usually I can tell, but I'm sure there have been one or two that have slipped by me in the past. Talk to me about the Gable film. What was that all about? The Gable film was the so-called name of a movie that was made by an amateur filmmaker from Michigan. Um, It was purporting to show a 70s-era truck and camera showing what looked like a man... Trying to, or a person trying to videotape some sort of a, a creature out in the brush. You can't see it. It's conveniently very blurred. And then it seems to be advancing toward the camera, and then the last thing you see are these teeth consuming the camera, and you sort of assume the victim. And this was followed um, sometime later by a second film that purported to show uh, policemen directing an amateur cameraman to tape what looked like um, a body that had been half-eaten by supposedly this same creature. And the story came out uh, from uh, a DJ in Michigan named Steve Cook that he had been given this film by somebody who got it at a rummage sale or an estate sale. It had the name Gable taped to the lid, so that's how it got the name of the Gable film. And it made the rounds on YouTube. People were guessing as to its authenticity. Um, My comment from the beginning, and I pretty much stuck to this, was it was interesting. Um, whoever did it did a really good job of uh, you know, make, using very convincing artifacts and that sort of thing. But right from the start, I said, well, you can't, it's too blurry, A, to see what it is, and B, you, it's not standing up on its hind legs, so how do you know that it's anything but some kind of a quadruped? And so to me, it never did show that it was some sort of a dogman, which was what they were trying to claim. Well, eventually the whole thing came out, and the very last episode of Monster Quest 
um, had both men admitting on camera that they hoaxed it. They hoaxed the whole thing. How much damage does that do to? Uh, I'm thinking, for example, I think it was Doug and Dave, the um, the crop circle hoaxers in in England, uh, and when they come out and say, "Well, we're responsible for all the hoaxes," how much damage does the Gable film, for example, do? to your work where you're trying to actually uncover uh, uh, you know, these, these genuine, what appear to be genuine sightings? Well, you know, I, I think it wastes a lot of people's time, and I think it disrespects the genuine witnesses who do come forward, you know, because they're sort of being mocked. And I think in a way it sometimes discourages other people from coming forward because they, um, you know, may, may see the whole field in an unfavorable light. I don't think that um, it really discredits the actual witnesses. There are so many, you know, who will say, I've, I'll take a polygraph test, I'm convinced of, of what I saw, and who have such um, genuinely compelling stories that, and reports that I, I don't believe that it discredits them in any way. It just disrespects them a bit and, like I said, wastes people's time. and. You know, it's it's really a, kind of a sad thing that people would resort to doing such a thing. Um, you know, it, it's 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 never good in any field. Is there is there, uh, to your knowledge, uh, Linda, um, any credible uh, video, film, or, or otherwise uh, uh, evidence of any of these canine creatures? Well, there may well be photos or video that are technically credible, but I don't think there's anything that I've seen that can prove conclusively that there is this canine. And even if you did have a, a shot of a canine standing and walking on its hind feet, again, that's not something that's impossible for them to do. It would be hard to prove that it wasn't set up somehow. I think you'd have to have um, you know, an actual video of an encounter for se- that went on for several minutes and uh, provided a lot of reference points and then, you know, passed all kinds of film tests. So, but people send me things all the time and I just haven't seen anything, although I wish I did, convincing, you know, that, that could actually prove it. All right, we'll take a time out, come back with Linda Godfrey as we talk about the Michigan Dogman, the Beast of Bray Road, on the trail of the American Werewolf here on The Conspiracy Show. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Don't get too far out past the campfire light, friends, as we're discussing canine creatures, werewolves, wolfmen, here on The Conspiracy Show. Linda Godfrey, my guest, uh... So are we ruling out entirely, uh, Linda, um, lycanthropy? Well, if by that you mean the traditional idea of a physical human being transforming into a physical wolf, 
I think so. I just don't buy that. I think it would, you know, it just really countermands all the uh, laws of physics and and even, um, you know, what we understand of uh, the few things we understand of, of uh, the other side of of, of physics, the uh, more the more intangible. But I do keep an open mind. Um, I think that there are things beyond what we can perceive with our ordinary senses. There are there is certainly a huge tradition of uh, medicine men, uh, shaman type practices where they are supposed to be able to conjure up a sort of a spirit double or uh, a separate entity that can go out and do their bidding. I don't know enough about this type of of uh, practice to really rule it out, but other there's there are many other people who also believe that these are some sort of projections of an earth or landscape spirit are two different ways of putting it that they reside as some sort of energy that can manifest itself and sort of interact with the human brain to show themselves in maybe a form that we um, would expect to see in the woods or that is um, indigenous to our own minds, if you will. So I think that there are other cases that can be made. Um, Certainly the Native Americans that I have interviewed uh, kind of subscribe to something similar to that last one. So, you know, I, I try not to be too hidebound, if you'll forgive the pun. It's <laughs> um, a good one. Of all the puns I've heard, that one is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. About, um, you know, insisting that these things have a, a, a mundane physical reality, because I just don't know for sure, you know, and, until I actually have one in front of me. And there are some researchers that have had... Uh, closer one-on-one experiences with them that, um, you know, if they say that Bigfoot is, is a kind of spirit animal, well, I, I give them their leeway to say that because they, you know, have perhaps earned the right, where I just haven't seen these creatures, at least not full-on myself. I may have seen a part of one once in Michigan, but I can't be sure. Enough that I can, I feel that I can say definitively which one it is. Well, g- getting back to the sort of the where the classic werewolf legend, lycanthropy as we call it. Uh, mm-hmm. I just wonder, what, you know, what do you think we should do with with uh, stories of you know Jacques Roulet back in 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 France in the 16th century, who you know who uh, was found in a cave after having torn a, a teenage uh, a, a boy limb from limb, covered in blood, and, and claimed that. Uh, you know that he was—he um, killed the boy while he was transformed into a werewolf. Uh, I mean, there well, and there are many of those types of—not many, but uh, they do exist. Those stories. Well, nobody ever saw any of those people actually transforming. You know, and there are psychological aberrations wherein people believe they're transforming. They may even perceive fur growing on themselves, and that sort of thing. And I've had some people write to me and say, "Hey, this happens to me." You know. Um, I have my friend chain me up in the basement every full moon, you know, so I don't go out and kill somebody. And my answer is always, well, if that's true, next time have your friend set up the video camera and then send me the videotape right, so we right. can see it. And I have yet to receive one. Yeah, there. I mean, there are, uh, there are I think, some, some, uh, some um, nice, some good links between certain conditions, uh, 
going back in time, for example, rabies, uh, those odd cases of humans contacting rabies, contracting right. rabies. I think that the, the, the symptoms there, there's a very interesting parallel between uh, the symptoms of having rabies and, and, and werewolf uh, uh, behavior. There is. And there's also the, the effects of ergot, which is a rye fungus that produces hallucinations where people think they're turning into monsters, and it makes, gives them extra um, strength and makes them act, you know, in, in crazy ways. And there have been some um, real ergot outbreaks where um, people acted as if they had werewolfism, but they still could not ever have been mistaken for the creatures that people are seeing around the United States, where they're, they're fully wolves. They're not humans with, you know, claws or um, half and half. They're upright walking, wolf-like creatures. How is it that an animal you described when it's uh, walking erect on two on two legs between mm-hmm. five and seven feet tall um, could remain sort of uncategorized, unrecognized, uh, you know, by biologists and so forth uh, sure. for so long? Well, um, it, it's not that unusual for, say, a timber wolf to achieve. Um, the kind of weight where it could easily be five feet tall and, and the larger ones could be seven feet tall. I've got pictures of dead timber wolves being held up that measure seven feet tall standing that way. But here's the thing. Many, many, many of the witnesses will see the creature going about both on, either they see it standing on two legs and it drops down and runs off on all fours when it knows it's being observed, or vice versa. It's on all fours and then it stands up and goes to confront them. So these things evidently have the ability to go on four legs and the intelligence to know that it makes them less um, interesting to humans if they're on four legs. So that they, if you, even if you found a dead one, you wouldn't say necessarily there's a werewolf. You'd say there's a really large, strange-looking um, animal. And not even that strange-looking because the really big difference is that they have a little more shoulder development. Most dogs don't even have shoulders, and they have slightly elongated paws, according to many witnesses. So, um, you know, unless you saw it in the act of behaving weirdly, running at you on its hind legs, um, or acting oddly, you wouldn't have a clue. So we could be talking simply about some subspecies, perhaps, of the timber wolf, which has Mm -hmm. evolved, adapted, to the point where it's quite comfortable running around on two legs. Yeah, I call that the indigenous dog man, and I, I proposed that in my first book as an idea that as something, and, and I can come up with a number of reasons why uh, it might have um, adapted that way. It was all tall prairie grass in Wisconsin and these heartland states around the Great Lakes where um, sightings are greatest, and you can see where something would find it an advantage to be able to stand up over these tall grasses and see whether there were enemies coming, whether there was prey like deer, um, and then to be able to run on your hind legs and carry your food that you had won uh, in your paws rather than dragging it on the ground with your mouth where anything can run up and, and try and take it away from you. Those are just two of the ways. And then once you free up your forelimbs, um, if it follows the same path as, as, as we have, it becomes more intelligent and you know, learns more. It, it, it's developing different neural pathways because it's using its body in different ways. And 
of course, anything with a slightly longer paws would find it easier to walk on its hind legs and, and use its forelimbs for holding meat. So those um, individuals would be selectively chosen, you know, by um, natural breeding practices. So you can kind of see how it could happen. Um, you know, I, I wish I had really scientific observations of natural timber wolves doing this, and I've called on wolf experts, and I'm still continuing that search. Um, but that possibility seems as plausible as, as anything else to me as far as explanations go. But some witnesses have ascribed, um, how should we call it, uh, uh, when, when they've encountered these creatures, uh, mm-hmm. the sort of this foreboding, this this sense that yeah. the the animal was trying to communicate to them some sort of a warning. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, and this is I'll I'll often get this after the witness has described everything else, and then they'll stop and they'll say, "Well, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I felt the creature was trying to get some sort of a message to me, not in English, not in words." but that it was saying something like, I'm here, you're there, you can't get me. If you tell anybody about me, I'll get you. Um, you know, sort of aggressive warning type things. And they feel that uh, they'll often describe its expression as a leer or a sneer, some sort of a, you know air of superiority that you really don't usually think of with a wild animal. With a, you know, if you just see a bear, you think that it, it, it just has a bare face. You don't think that it's sneering at you. And I hear this over and over and over so many times that uh, it does seem to be a common factor with these creatures. Let me go back to um, one of the earlier sightings uh, in Wisconsin, uh, just east of Jefferson, Highway 18. I don't know where that is uh, with respect to uh, Elkhorn or Bray Road. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Mark Shackleman reportedly encountering this yeah. talking wolf-like creature. Yeah. What, what that, can you tell me about that about, case? Yeah, that's about 45 miles northwest of, of Bray Road. And, um, again, I can play the devil's advocate. I, I, I can say he reported a word that sounded to him like Gadara, which happens to be the biblical name of a region where Jesus um, found the madman in the caves, and which has references to werewolfism, you know, as a psychological condition, and cast the demons out into this uh, herd of swine that then threw themselves into the, the sea. However, those syllables, G and R, are also the same sounds that you would hear from something growling. And I have a fair number of testimonies of people who've encountered this thing out in the open, and they often report that it makes this sort of growling sound that raises in pitch and, you know, kind of grrr, and you can kind of see where you could interpret it as a word. Um, so I've, I've never been sure about that one. But it was interesting because it occurred on the site of a, a, a Roman Catholic Institute for the Developmentally Disabled on uh, an ancient Indian mound. So you've got this holy Christian site, and you've got this sacred ancient site, and the whole thing just sort of starts out that way. And I've been investigating this for years and have uncovered other interesting things that uh, relate to kind of the woo-woo side of it, So, uh, and those will be in my next book. But um, to me, that's 
kind of one of the, the the beginning, the very beginning sightings. And they really go back to the 30s. I've got a couple of other ones from that date, too, and not too much before that. The uh, the the Beast of Bray Road, uh, as it has been dubbed, uh, sounds like a fairly aggressive uh, creature. I think one of the first reports, going back to '99, uh, it actually jumped onto the hood of a, a young girl's car and 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 tried to to get at her. Right, and uh, she said it reminded her of like a pro fighter on steroids, and and she could hear it running on its hind legs. And she actually showed me. The scratch marks, and they did look consistent with, you know, something coming with claws on on, on two different paws. Uh, but it couldn't be proved, of course. You don't know what really made the scratches, and there wasn't any fur or anything like that left. Um, but this is something that I get fairly often. If people are, are uh, slowed down with their car, or even if they catch it out in the open, I've had people chased, um, threatened, felt like they were going to be made lunch. It seems to act very aggressively. Um, and I can also relate this to being very territorial. Any large predator is going to need a large amount of territory um, in which it, it has dominance over the prey and perhaps uh, protecting its, its family, too, so that you can see, you can sort of understand why they would act this way, um, you know, trying to get people out of their, out of their face. However, um, Bray Road is not a lonely territory and um it's surprising to me it's still surprising to me that it it continues to be a place where where sightings occur anything in the ancient fossil record um i'm thinking of the descriptions of this wolf as being you know very uh sort of heavily built you know you mentioned across the shoulders what about the dire wolf yeah that's often brought up and i have um written about that a, a few different times. The only problem with it is that it, it, it did exist quite a long time ago. However, there have been a, a couple of uh, incidents in the East and in the West, not in Wisconsin, but other places where, um, I think in the, is it the Ohio Valley, River Valley? I'm not positive. I don't have it right in front of me. But there was a creature called the Wahila that in settler times was said to be biting um, the heads off of people who were sleeping, you know, out in the open. And it, it takes pretty powerful jaws to do that sort of thing. So um, there have been rumors of remnants of this species out and about. Um, but again, the only trouble with that analogy is that there's no evidence, no eyewitness reports or anything like that from those days of anyone seeing this thing walk upright. And actually, the way it was built, it's, it's sort of so top-heavy, it, it almost seems even less likely that the dire wolf would have walked upright than the modern, t- uh, more slender timber wolf. What so um, the, the, the older creatures in, in the fossil record don't really um, bear up under the idea of, of there being a precedent for a canine that would naturally walk around upright. Leaving the the canine creature for a moment, I'm just wondering. Uh, you know, I, I I'm never I never cease to be amazed by the uh, the the range uh, in the lower 48 of of Bigfoot. Uh, I've even yeah. read of accounts uh, of Bigfoot sightings on Rhode Island, if you can believe it. But what about Bigfoot sightings in Wisconsin, Michigan? Oh yes, they're all over Wisconsin. They're generally not as huge as the ones described out on the West Coast, but um, they they seem like a smaller variant. 
And it's interesting because there have been quite a few in the same general area that um, the, the dogman ty- or wolfman type creature has been sighted. However, they sort of seem to keep to their own territories. They're adjacent. They're sort of using the same general area. But as I map them out, I notice that I can almost predict where the werewolf sightings are going to be, and I use that term loosely, and where the Bigfoot sightings are going to be. And within a certain narrow strip of a couple, that, that uh, covers parts of several counties, um, going back to the 1960s, I have at least a dozen pretty good sightings of Bigfoot, uh, many of them daylight, many by um, more than one person at the same time, you know, that, that seem pretty solid. And um, it seems to me that in this small area of southeastern Wisconsin, that's kind of phenomenal for, um, they have so many in such a small area over just several decades. Uh, Linda, I had uh, Nick Redford on the program, uh, my gosh, was it last week, the week before, mm-hmm. talking about his new book, The Men in Black, The Real Men in Black. Oh, that's w- a great book. Yes, I know. I noticed that you had reviewed it. I and, reviewed uh, it. Yeah. Um, any any uh, sightings of or any encounters reported to you of uh, you know people in Wisconsin, Michigan, in this sort of this paranormal anomalous corridor that you would you inhabit uh anybody talk about visits from men in black after perhaps seeing uh, something strange like a bigfoot or a um a dogman i haven't heard of people being visited by men in black after seeing these strange creatures i've heard of a few after ufo experiences um and wisconsin is rife with ufo sightings it's you know there are lots of them and um, oftentimes in the same, very same areas where you have the creature sightings. I haven't had anybody see one exactly coming out of a UFO, you know, where you can completely identify it with it, but um, very often they're, they're in the very same areas. It sounds like you, you're, uh, you're in exactly the spot that you need to be to do the kind of work that you do, uh, uh, Linda, living there in, <laughs> in, in Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm sort of blessed that way. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, there's you, you've got 13 books now and counting. Uh, I, I mean, do you ever think about picking up and 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 moving and I don't know, dis- and discovering the the strange, you know, the chupacabra of the American Southwest or anything like that? Um, I I'd, I'd like to. I'm a little bit restricted um, due to my husband's work as to, as to where I live, um, and it's. It's hard for me to make those big travels and still keep up to my uh, publishing schedule. But um, I'm not averse if I have the chance to go out and investigate other creatures. And I actually have had, uh, I have been out in the southwest area and, and had some people who said they saw chupacabras that um, I haven't had really the opportunity to write about. But, uh, you know, here in Wisconsin, we have man bats, we have. Um, Flying dragons, lizard men, large birds, um, you name it, it's all here. So I really don't have to travel too far to investigate just about any kind of creature. They're, they're even little green men. They're all in that book, Monsters of Wisconsin, that just came out. And uh, how do people get a hold of Monsters of Wisconsin? Well, it's available on any of the online bookstores. It's probably the easiest way to do it. Including Amazon. Yes. Oh, definitely on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Linda Godfrey, uh, a pleasure, and um, I look forward to speaking to you again. 
was very much my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me, Richard. All right, thank you. Linda Godfrey, Monsters of Wisconsin, The Michigan Dogman, The Beast of Bray Road, and uh, more coming at you from the great Badger State, the state of Wisconsin. All right, we'll uh, open up the phone lines now till we dim the lights at 1 a.m. Eastern. So if there's anything on your mind related to cover-ups, conspiracies, political subterfuge, the paranormal, if you've had some sort of an encounter that raised the hackles on the back of your neck, maybe uh, you're down there in Michigan and you've you've encountered the dog man, we'd love to hear from you at 416-360-0740-866-740-4740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Open lines now until we close down for the night. Just a reminder, the website, richardserrett.com. Let me spell the last name. S as in Simon. Y-R-E-T-T. Richard Serrett rhymes with carrot. richardserrett.com. That's your portal uh, to the uh, conspiracy radio program. And, of course, the, uh, the television program. Uh, we have a website for that as well, and uh, that's fairly easy to remember. It's theconspiracyshow.com. The plan... Uh, however, is to merge those two websites. So it'll be easy one-stop shopping, and the radio and the TV uh, show will all be under theconspiracyshow.com. But un- until we uh, arrive at that destination, we have the two websites, richardserrett.com for the radio, theconspiracyshow.com for the TV. Uh, and the um, richardserrett.com website will, uh, will tell you who's coming up on the program from week to week, and if you missed a show... Uh, there's a past show audio archive. Now, we list the the past shows there, and you've probably noticed with some consternation that you can't actually download uh, previous shows there. Uh, I lost my webmaster uh, a while back, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't have the technical capability to upload the programs. But if you go to um, AM740, Zoomer Media, or sorry, zoomerradio.ca, uh, that'll lead you to a, a place where you can actually download the iTunes. That's correct, right, Griffin? That's the place to go. Show, uh, I'm just getting some instructions. Or you could just Google Conspiracy Show Podcasts, and that'll take you to iTunes. Okay? So just Google Conspiracy Show Podcasts, and uh, that'll take you to the iTunes page. Uh, but, of course, we do want you to visit zoomerradio.ca often. All right. Uh, Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend, I know wants to get in here and has some things to say about this horrific um, traumatic event uh, that uh, transpired in Norway 
on uh, on Friday night, uh, or a Friday rather. Uh, Nelson, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. It's great being here, Richard. Good to have you joining us by Skype, which we love so much. Well, yeah, a lot happening. Uh, what's your take on this Anders uh, Breivik character? Richard, it's an old story, isn't it? This is not new, as I'm sure you know. I mean, we have these harmonics of 322 all along. Uh, The Madrid bombing was uh, very much like this, and it was on 311. And here we have another harmonic of Skull and Bones. And uh, there's no doubt that with the impending worldwide financial collapse has come... I mean, as Skolnick said, Skolnick wrote that the impending worldwide financial collapse has come with it, has come the reemergence of the monarchies of Europe to rule with an iron fist and promote fascism uh, and to push it down upon unsuspecting Americans with cover stories and propaganda that it's simply fighting the terrorism of the Muslim world. And he wrote that and he was bang on. That's what we're seeing again, because we're on the verge. Worldwide financial collapse. Oh, uh, I don't know if you had. I know you were on the road earlier. We had Webster Tarpley on the program at eleven o'clock, and uh, he said uh, that what we might be seeing. And, and first of all, he, he's warning us, you know, not to uh, to sort of buy into the the narrative here that Anders, this Anders uh, Abravik is sort of this right wing fanatic or right wing extremist. Uh, rather, he was sort of sent down from central casting, and, and uh, that's sort of the, the bio that they've attached to this patsy. He's calling him a patsy. Uh, but uh, he seems to think that this might be payback uh, uh, because Norway is, is trying to back out of its, uh, its, its uh, NATO commitment and, uh, and, and back down on its, uh, the, the airstrikes in Libya. Yeah, there's no doubt that the New World Order... Um, as you and I have followed this, Richard, this is an ongoing. This is not a new war that's happened to Norway. It's just a uh, part of a part of the same war, but another battle. And um, we've seen this before, as the nation states get attacked, either financially with Greece and Ireland and etc. Uh, the war rages on, either with using the the weaponry of financial instruments or of bombs as the New World Order uh, b- battles against the nation states with terrorism, which as we've pointed out before over and over again, terrorism is a world order the world government to destroy the nation states. What do you know, uh, speaking about you know the monarchies and so forth, and, and uh, uh, Norway is a kingdom, King Harold of Norway, uh, um, I mean, how close? I mean, who are they aligned with? Are they are they Habsburgs? Are they Windsors? Who are they aligned with? Do we know? Well, the aristocrats include the crowned monarchs, the crowned heads of Europe, the Club of the Isles. Google them in the Club of the Isles, the Order of the Garter, which includes the Vatican and the Chair of Peter. But, but specifically, what on. do we know about King Harold of Norway? Well, it, it, it's a monarchy. He's part of the crowned heads of Europe. Okay, all right. He's a part of the crowned heads of Europe, so um, he's he's uh, it, it's it it's Richard. It's like prior to the printing press, the nation state didn't exist, and the monarchies ruled. And now we're moving back to the rule of the monarchies, and and we know from scripture and prophecy that ten nation, ten kings take over and become the beast, form the beast. 
in Europe ridden by the woman, which is the whore, which is false church, false religion, the daughters. Um, Webster also indicated that uh, he suspects or he's fearful of a, a U.S. default, uh, which could uh, cause an absolute economic cataclysm, uh, the likes we haven't seen since the Great Depression of 29. Uh, are you expecting that that is an, an eventuality? Well, we know that uh, the king of Spain, the king of Jerusalem, also gives orders and gives audiences to the British prime minister and, and, and is good enough to give an audience to the uh, commander-in-chief of the United States. And they take orders from King Juan Carlos, as we know, and it's been talked about. Skolnick's written about it, and it's, uh, it, you know, it pops up in the Donald Rumsfeld Swiss firm, ABB, uh, selling uh, nuclear parts to North Korea, as Skolnick pointed out. Okay, I'm not following you there. If selling missiles to North Korea, but what about the economic cataclysm? Well, we are going to have a, a shift in, in the conspiracy has always been against the dollar and against the Fed and against uh, world currency and changing world currency. And that's basically what's behind this whole uh, operation. So you, you, do you think that the U.S. will in fact default? No, I don't think they'll default in a cataclysmic way, but I think that they will make a deal whereby um, world cur they share world currency with other baskets, other currency baskets. Which is a de world currency. Oh, it, so it would be a de facto a one world currency. It's a way of shifting into a new world currency by taking it to the brink of disaster, but then repairing it, which they always do. What's coming up on the next episode of Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel? Well, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the doubles, Rich. Once again, we're going to go. We've had it. Assange has been changed now and, uh, uh, with a double. And there's a, the war of doubles that goes on is very fascinating. Hollywood's talked about it. And we're going to uh, talk more about the, the, sec the secret war of doubles. So Assange from WikiLeaks has been taken out of the picture and he's been replaced with a double. To what end? Well, the secret war of doubles. It's to take it to the next stage. All right. just, like the, just like from Russia with love, the Roswell that went to Russia was a different one that came back. All right, Nelson, that's uh, next time on uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel, the War of Doubles. Yep. Always appreciate your lot, time. Richard. It's been great. Bloomandsteel.com. Thanks, Nelson. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Uh, Darlene is in uh, Steeltown, Hamilton, Ontario. Good morning, Darlene. Good morning. Um, I have a question. Um, you mentioned something very briefly once. You said something, I think it was about uh, a set of numbers, and you said they had very positive and very negative effects. Do you recall? Or was, maybe it was um, a medallion or something. You said um, very positive and very negative. A medallion. And th this was something that I said or one of my guests uh, said? Brief no, it was you. It was Briefly, um, you had a guest on, and you just said it quickly, and then you went to the next, either the next caller or the next question. A medallion and a good set of numbers and a bad set. That, you know, I, it's possible or, or I said that. Of, or a series of numbers. A series like of numbers. You said it, was very, it could be very positive and very negative. Hmm. I have to be honest, you know, that's not ringing a bell unless unless I was 
uh, unless I was, I was reiterating something a guest said. I mean, I'm not well versed in numerology. Um, so, it, you know, I have to say, it doesn't sound like me. Uh, something to do with healing? Could it have to do with healing? Yes. Um, you know, there is, uh, I, ha- I have had a number of guests on that talk about um, certain frequencies. For example, uh, for example, uh, uh, Royal Raymond Reif, who invented uh, a telescope back in the 20s, which was even more powerful than an electron microscope. I said telescope, I meant microscope. And he was able to identify uh, certain frequencies that could destroy viruses, germs, bacteria. Uh, others have talked about healing frequencies. People like Dr. Len Horowitz um, notes that were discovered supposedly encrypted in the in the Bible in the Book of Numbers, sort of an ancient musical scale. Um, so I'm wondering if that might have yeah, been something I was referencing. You know, if you were to Google um, um, Dr. Len Horowitz and healing frequencies or something like that, uh, he, healing musical notes, I think he, he, I think on a website he would probably identify those, what those might be. And you can actually buy CDs now uh, in which they how, incorporate these healing tones. How can something heal and at the same time, as he said, destroy? That, that's what I don't... That, that's the conundrum. Yeah. Well, certain. Well, I don't know if they're the same tones. Certain tones supposedly can be can be beneficial. Uh, for example, the theory is that everything has a frequency, a resonant frequency. This is what Royal Raymond Rife was operating under the understanding that if you can identify the resonant frequency of a of a, a virus or a cell, if you hit it with the same frequency, like the same as an opera singer hitting a note. That, that has the same resonant frequency as a, as a crystal glass, it shatters. So in that sense, you, couldn't, you can destroy with a frequency. Uh, what is his name, Royal? Royal Raymond. Royal, as in, you know, the, the royal jelly or royal blue. Royal Raymond, R-A-Y-M-O-N-D, Rife, R-I-F-E. Um, some think he was a complete quack. Others think he was the greatest scientist ever uh, who was sort of maligned and discredited because perhaps he had found the cures for... He, he Some claimed he found the cure for just about every known pathogen and illness out there using these frequencies. Well, this is back in the 30s. He died sort of a, a broken man, uh, an, an alcoholic, perhaps driven to drink. Um, and um, it's interesting that not too long ago there were studies that, uh, you know, this is like 70 years later, where scientists were claiming that they could literally shake a virus to death, but they were again referencing certain frequencies, as they were almost speaking the same language of Royal Raymond Rife. It was interesting. I, I when I when I when I read that, I took note. But um, there's a lot of information about about musical notes, tones, frequencies, uh, and um, you know, a good place to start, I would say, would be Dr. Len Horowitz. Just Google that, and um, he's identified certain tones. He calls sort of the frequencies of love. Uh, um, I got. Well, we have to have Doctor Lad on the show again. Healing. Are you familiar with healing energies? You had um, someone who talked about uh, the Mary Mysteries. Are you familiar with healing energies? Oh, certainly. Uh, healing frequencies, as I as I mentioned, there are a number of those frequencies have been identified. Um, um, 
and, and as I said, you can actually buy CDs now that contain supposedly these healing frequencies and just by listening to them supposedly, at, at the very least, they give you a sense of well-being. Um, and your email, I've sent emails. I've not gotten any response. Was there an easier way to get a hold of you? Or? Um, well, if you, I'm generally pretty good uh, about responding to emails. Um, if, if you send it to richard at richardserrett.com, I don't know if that's the one you've been using or through the website, but just try emailing me directly, richard at richardserrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T dot com, and um, just put in the subject uh, uh, heading, you know, maybe what the question is. And uh, as I said, you know, I would say eight out of the ten emails I get around to responding to. Okay. Okay, Darlene. Well, thank you so much for calling. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, well, uh, that's about it for tonight, I think. Griffin March, thank you, as always, for your expertise behind the audio board. Back next week, Freddie Silva, a British circle chaser of some renowned... What is a circle chaser? That's a crop circle researcher. We're getting into crop circle uh, season, really, as the the uh, the barley fields, the grain fields, start to grow. That's when these strange formations, some call them agroglyphs, appear in crops all over England and uh, some here in Canada. I think we're number two on the list of crop circle countries after uh, Great Britain. Anyway, Freddie Silva will be along to discuss some fascinating research in that area. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.